said, we're starting a new series on the Gospel of Luke. We're starting at the very beginning. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I'll read those for us. You can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is the gospel of the Lord. So uh, as we start into this series on Luke, uh, one of the things I want to do is help you distinguish Luke from the other gospel accounts and also help you see why it is particularly helpful for us as Christians to study the gospel of Luke. Uh, Dr. Alvin Schmidt, he's a a professor at Illinois College, uh, has just recently read a book um, uncovering a bunch of research that sort of was scattered all about the scholarly world, but no one had really put together yet, about the use of the word faith. The use of the word faith. If you were to ask the average person on the street what faith is, they would probably say something like a belief in things you can't see or a belief in things you can't prove. Unfortunately, that is a very modern way of thinking of the word faith. What Dr. Schmidt's work has revealed is that if you were to go back to the time when Jesus was living on earth, when these documents, the scriptures, were being written about him, that word faith would not have meant anything like that. Faith would have been a common recognition of facts. So, for example, um, I would have faith that I could sit on this chair up here and that it wouldn't break underneath me because I've sat on chairs like that, and I can see that all of you are sitting on chairs like that, and I don't think I'm that much heavier than all of you. Faith is just a common recognition of the facts. It is not belief in something that you cannot see or cannot prove. Now, Christians, they they for a second maybe balk at that because they think of that verse from Hebrews that says, faith is being certain of what we hope for uh, and sure of what we do not see. The thing to understand about that verse, though, is it's not talking about faith being simply a belief in things unseen, but that faith allows you to believe in the things that are unseen. Faith itself is not the belief in things unseen. That would probably be more well categorized as hope. But faith is simply the recognition of the facts. And so when the Christian church talked about its faith as the faith, They were not saying we have this abstract belief in some God or some deity that that did some work that makes us feel better about ourselves or helps us live a good life. They were simply recognizing the facts of what they have seen. That's why you have people like Peter in that lesson that we read saying they're eyewitnesses. None of this scripture was the prophet's own interpretation. They They were seeing things and they were writing them down. And as we'll see from Luke, the same is true. But I think we struggle with this as Christians because we live in the modern world where we think of faith as something that you just believe abstractly, and we really need to divorce ourselves from that idea. Um, In scholarly talk, you call this fideism. It's faith in faith. It's just sort of hoping that things will kind of be good at some point. But what we have in, in Christianity is an absolute certain faith. We don't just believe abstractly that Jesus rose from the dead. We know it. 
We don't just believe abstractly that life's going to get better in the life to come. No, we know it because we've seen the facts. If you're a skeptic, or maybe even if you're a Christian and you've never thought these things before, you, you might be wondering, well, then what did I believe in? Um, I can't necessarily get inside your head and figure that out, but I would ask us all to evaluate ourselves and ask if we're believing in faith as an idea or if we're believing in the objective reality of who Jesus is and what he did. And if you're struggling, Luke is the place to go. Luke is particularly concerned with making sure you understand the historical facts of what happened to Jesus of Nazareth. And so what I want to do is I just want to walk through very slowly his text, these four verses that I read for you. I put them on the notes sheet for you with nothing there, just the text. So you can circle and underline and draw lines and put little notes on the side in the margins, whatever you need to do so that you can understand and remember the power of this text. In a sense, this is one of the greatest texts in the Bible because it grounds our faith in reality. So let's walk through the text together. Luke starts by saying, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. The Apostle Luke understands that he's not the first person to write about Jesus. Uh, Luke's gospel was probably written about the year 60. Uh, Mark's gospel was, again, depending on which scholars you trust, was probably written about the year 45 to 50. So there's already been Mark's gospel that's been circulating through the world, telling people about Jesus at least 10, maybe 15 even years before Luke puts his pen to paper. And Mark is not the only one. The Apostle Paul is writing at this time. The Apostle Matthew is writing at this time. The Apostle Peter is writing at this time. Um, There are many documents that are recounting the facts of what Jesus did and what he said. And Luke gets this. If you remember back to our Destroyer of the Gods series on the text of Scripture and how Christians interacted with the text of Scripture, one of the things that we said was the more documents you put to paper about a certain person, the more possible it is for someone to poke holes in your argument if you're telling a lie. But Luke's not worried about that because he knows the things that have happened are true. They're real and no one would discount them. So he says, yeah, many people have already written about this, but I'm also going to write about this because it's so obvious, it's so true, and you need to know it, that the more documents we have recounting the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the better. He then says that many have undertaken to draw up an account and this is pretty technical language. The idea would be uh, like taking a witness statement. Um, it's writing down a document, something like we might think of as an affidavit, right? This, this idea of a document that is going to be legally binding because it is supposed to be completely true. He says, many people have already accounted for the facts. They have written those facts down. And I also am going to do that, understanding that. It's an important thing for us to realize. Christianity is not abstract belief. It's not just the hope that some God out there is going to help me. Again, it's the recounting of real historical facts. Luke then says, these things that have been undertaken to be drawn up about are things that have been fulfilled among us. The word fulfilled is powerful because he could have said the things that have happened among us, right? But he says fulfilled because he understands his Old Testament. He understands that there were numerous prophecies, hundreds of prophecies about the coming Messiah, 
This anointed one who was going to be the savior of the entire world through the entire Old Testament, which spans 1,500 years of writing and a couple thousand years of history. He says, across those thousand years of history, the prophecies that were given about the Messiah came true in the person of Jesus. They were fulfilled among us. And honestly, if you're a skeptic of the Bible and you think, well, it's kind of old stories that maybe some people believe to make themselves feel better about themselves, um, you have to account for this idea that the prophecies were fulfilled. Like I said, there are hundreds of prophecies about the Messiah, but some of them are so ridiculous to think that Jesus just somehow knew about them and tried to fulfill them in order to build himself a reputation that to believe that the scriptures are just made up stories is ridiculous. The Bible in its Old Testament um, prophesies exactly where Jesus would be born. It prophesies when he would be born. It prophesies who his mother would be. It prophesies how he would be killed using a technique for execution that had not even been invented when it was written about. It prophesied where he would be buried. It prophesied that he would come back to life. It prophesied all these things that Jesus could not have possibly controlled unless, of course, he was God. And so you have to ask yourself, like, how do you account for that? The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus lived, writes about his birth, writes about his death, writes about his burial. How do you account for that? I'll tell you how I do. God wrote the book, and God came and fulfilled it to prove to us that Jesus is the only way to be saved. And Luke understands that. And so, even though many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, Luke also wants you to understand this, so that you realize this Jesus was not just some fly-by-night teacher or a good moral leader or a vigilante of some sort, but he was the fulfillment of thousands of years of history and prophecy. He then says these things have been fulfilled among us, among us. He says these things that have happened, they are common knowledge. Uh, In Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, he will say, he'll tell a story of the apostle Paul speaking to a governmental leader and he will say, Paul will say, these things that happened to Jesus, they did not happen in a corner. They were things that were common knowledge. Everyone saw him. Thousands of people were there on Palm Sunday as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Hundreds of people walked past Jesus as he was crucified on the cross. Hundreds of people saw Jesus alive after he came back to life. The eyewitnesses are there. This is common knowledge. And remember, Luke is writing only about 30 years after these things have happened. I mean, think back to the 90s. Do you guys remember the 90s? Do you remember the hairstyles? Do you remember the music? Do you remember the clothes? Of course you do, because most of you were there. It's not that far off. And you remember the big events that happened in the 90s. Well, in the same way, 30 years after this, Luke is writing a document that says, we all kind of know this happened. It happened among us. Contrast that maybe to another world religion like Islam, where the Quran happened in a corner. Literally, Muhammad received a vision while he was away from everybody else. Or Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, who went into a cave and was given the ability to read a text that was supposedly from God that had not been revealed yet. It didn't happen among us. It happened in a corner. But that's not Christianity. 
Christianity is willing to be critiqued because it knows that it's true. Luke continues in verse 2. He says, These things, these things that have been fulfilled among us, were handed down to us from those who first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. This word handed down is the idea of um, sort of like you would think of oral tradition. It's the telling of stories. It's bringing knowledge that a generation has to a younger generation. These stories that, that were handed down are stories that were directly and correctly accounted for as they were given from the eyewitnesses to the people who wrote these things down. And since you have, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 of the brothers or sisters who saw Jesus at one time, you have corroboration, right? If you know anything about a court of law, the more eyewitnesses you have, the more likely you are to believe their story, which is exactly what Luke understands when he calls them eyewitnesses. There's not much better evidence in a court of law than eyewitnesses, especially 500 eyewitnesses. And for us, even as we look at the scriptures today, even though we don't know the eyewitnesses personally like Luke would have known them, we have 24,000 copies or fragments of the New Testament that agree with each other in 99.7% of all cases. And those 0.3% of cases where the scripture does not exactly align with other texts that we have of the Bible, it does not change anything of the meaning of the scriptures. It'd be things like typos or two words that are switched in order. It does not change anything about what we know has been written down and handed down to us. We have the words of the eyewitnesses. He continues in verse three. He says, with all this in mind, with all this in mind, that eyewitnesses have already given their testimony, that many people have undertaken to draw up a legal account of what happened among us, these historic events, I'm gonna do it too. So he says that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Now, in our age, the idea of do your own research is a little bit suspect. But for Luke, it was not. First of all, Luke was a medical doctor. And as we know even today, medical doctors are some, peop- some of the people with the highest educations among us. This was a man who was brilliant. In fact, you can see it as you read this text in Greek. Um, This text was originally written in Greek, and while in the English it comes to us in a couple different sentences, in Greek it is all one classical Greek sentence. Like, if you remember, like, diagramming sentences in grade school, this sentence would be a nightmare for you, because it is so beautifully composed. It is as if Luke is saying in his first sentence of his gospel, I'm no dummy. I know how to think through things. I know how to do research. I know how to think highly about these things. And then Luke did his research. As we work through the Gospel of Luke, you can tell that he is dealing with different eyewitnesses at different times. It's pretty obvious that he talked to Paul and to Peter and to Jesus' mother Mary as he recounts these stories, just by the fact of some of the details that he's able to account for. He went and did the research. And he was supported by most excellent Theophilus. Uh, Most excellent Theophilus is uh, an interesting character. We don't know anything else about him besides the fact that he is mentioned in Luke's gospel and then also at the beginning of Acts. Um, There are really two ways to understand who Theophilus is. On the one hand, the word Theophilus is really just two Greek words, theo, or theos, which is God, and philos, like Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, the word for love. So God lover is literally what Theophilus means. And so it's possible that Luke is just saying, for all Christians, for all God lovers who might read this text later. 
But the words most excellent maybe push us a little bit away from that because as Luke writes his gospel, he uses this phrase most excellent in other places. And he always uses it to talk about someone who has a high position of authority in his governmental system. It seems that this Theophilus was somebody who was a high-ranking official who had given the apostle, or excuse me, given Luke money in order to take time out of his medical practice, sort of like a research grant to take time and find out all these things that he researched. This is high-level academic writing that Luke is giving to us. That's why he calls it an orderly account, an orderly account. Um, as we look at the other Gospels, it's not that the other Gospels are not orderly. But the, what Luke understands as he writes this Gospel for you is he's not leaving anything to the imagination. And we'll talk about this a little bit later in the sermon. But if you read Matthew, Matthew assumes that you have a certain level of knowledge about the Old Testament. And as you read Mark, Mark assumes that you have a certain level of knowledge about the Roman world at that time. And as you read John, John has a certain level of knowledge that you already, or assumes that you have a certain level of knowledge about who the Trinity is already. Luke is not going to do that for you. He says, I'm writing this for a skeptic. I'm writing this for someone who has questions. I'm writing this for someone who has doubts. I'm writing this without any assumptions about who you are or what you already believe. So I'm going to write you an orderly account. I'm not going to leave things out unless they are unnecessary for you to know who Jesus is and what he did. Then Luke finishes this way. He does all this so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Not just the hope not just the good feelings, the certainty. This story is real, that it, it's historical, that it's verifiable, and that it has a claim on your life. And that claim is a beautiful claim. The beautiful claim that Jesus, the Son of God, came to live and die for you. To come back to life so that you could know that this life is not all that there is that you could not live just for the next moment of pleasure or the next accomplishment or the next acknowledgement, but you could know that God, the one who created the world and holds it all together with, the, with the, the finger of his hand, cares about you, loves you, is guiding your life, and is bringing you home to be with him forever. Luke wants you to know that with certainty because he knows life is uncertain. You just take stock of your life right now. You know there are so many things that are uncertain. Our political system is uncertain. Our investments and finances are uncertain. The future of our children is uncertain. Our health is uncertain. And someday there's going to be a time when you're going to be lying on a bed that you will not get up from. At that point, do you want to be uncertain? Or do you want to be certain? To know what's going to happen next? You can be. You can read what Luke carefully investigated and wrote down for you so you can know the facts. You can know the history. You can know the unchangeable reality that Jesus is who he says he is. So I hope you join me on this trip through Luke. I think it'll be beautiful for those of us who have questions about Jesus or who have never, maybe never thought about the historical reality of Jesus. Uh, to finish, I want to show you why Luke's so important for us to study in comparison to the other Gospels. We have these four Gospels that are, are contained in the Scriptures for us, and it's not just that we need to have a, a surplus of evidence, although that's a nice benefit of having four Gospels in the Bible. Each of the Gospels give us a different angle on Jesus. 
Last year, we studied through the book of Mark, and we found out that Mark is focused particularly on the divine Jesus. He is God. He is the power of God, the power to drive out demons and heal people and raise people from the dead. And nobody understands him. He doesn't operate like a normal human being. His family rejects him. His friends reject him. People of the society reject him because he doesn't operate like everybody else. We saw that in Mark's gospel. I mentioned this already. Matthew's gospel is particularly focused on the coming Messiah being fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew contains more Old Testament quotes than any of the other gospels. Matthew wants you to realize that thousands of years of history have culminated in this one person of whom all the prophecies are fulfilled in him. John then is focused on Jesus as the word made flesh. John contains more words of Jesus than the other gospels. He's particularly concerned with what Jesus said. And then we get to Luke. And Luke contains for us the human Jesus. We know this Jesus is both God and man, 100% divine and yet at the same time 100% human so that he could die as God and his eternal divine life could be credited to all of our accounts and save all of our lives from hell forever. Luke wants you to know this human Jesus though. First of all, from a historical perspective, to understand that he was a real person who really lived. But then he also wants you to see the humanity of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the unconditional love of Jesus. You know, it's only Luke's gospel that contains Jesus' birth narrative. It shows you not just that he was a human baby, but that at one point in his life, he was completely physically helpless. So that in those moments when you feel completely physically helpless, you can know that Jesus knows and Jesus cares. It's only in Luke's gospel where we get the story of Zacchaeus, the short man who climbed up a tree to see Jesus. A man who had cheated numerous people out of their money and was finally coming to his senses that maybe he had done something wrong. And Jesus says to him, come down from that tree. I want to eat with you tonight. Luke contains this story for us, accounts for this story for us. For those of us who have messed up our lives, who have made more mistakes than we can count, would rather not talk about them, know that we've hurt other people so that we can know that this Jesus wants to be with us. It's only in Luke's gospel where we get the story of the prodigal son. That parable that Jesus tells about the younger son who says, dad, you're better to me dead than alive. Give me my inheritance. I want to go live however I want to live. But then when he comes to his senses, comes back to his father, and instead of his father chastising him, disciplining him, or kicking him out of the family, he wraps his arms around him and throws a party because his son who was dead is now alive again to remind us that for those of us who maybe have run away from Jesus, Jesus wants us to come back and will welcome us with open arms. And I could go through numerous other stories that only Luke contains for us, but I hope you get the point. If you think you're doing pretty well at life, Luke's gospel's not for you. If you think you're a pretty good person, Luke's gospel is not for you. But if you found the end of yourself, if you feel guilt, if you feel shame, if you know that you're not enough, if you're scared of what life has for you, Luke is for you. Because Jesus is for you. Let's pray about that. God, thank you for blessing your servant Luke 
with the scriptures that he wrote down for us so that we can know your unending love. We can know the sacrifice that you gave so that we could live forever. And so for those who hear this word and who know that they are not enough in and of themselves, I pray that you would bring your Holy Spirit to convict them of this historical reality. That Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose. And because of that, we can have certainty that this life is not all that there is. There is something so much better and more beautiful coming for us. So for all of us who love you, I ask your blessing today and this week until we get the chance to hear more from your servant Luke next week. I ask that in your name. Amen.